John 5, 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was at Jerusalem by the sheep market, or the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches or porticos. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting on the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case. Isn't it good to know that Jesus knows exactly how long we put up with something? He knew he'd been there a long time. He saith unto him, Will thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. Now, in this story, the Bible tells us that the pool is called Bethesda, which is by interpretation the house of mercy. I'd like to speak to you on that theme tonight, the house of mercy. Thank you for standing. Thank you for being here and worshiping. Please be seated. Favorite words of Pentecost. You may be seated. The house of mercy. The biblical meaning of mercy is to be spared or rescued from judgment, harm, danger, or trouble. Mercy is really a quality of God, that God is a merciful God. He's called in the Bible the Father of mercies. He is rich in mercy. He's full of pity and merciful, the Bible says. In Romans 12 and 1, Paul wrote, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, not by the wrath of God, but by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, mercy is an action more than an emotion. It may begin with a feeling or of compassion, but mercy always does something. That's very important that mercy becomes an action. Holman Bible Dictionary said that mercy is given by God and it's the foundation for forgiveness. It is His steadfast love and faithfulness that is the trigger of His mercy in our lives. And mercy is not just displaying an emotion, but mercy is taking merciful actions. It's doing something about a condition another person is in. In the Old Testament, God gave provisions to Israel, manna in the wilderness, because He is a merciful God. He gave them protection, like the shepherd of Israel who kept His sheep, His people. He gave them mercy and deliverance over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Never, mercy that God gives has never been given to anybody because they deserved it. Because we don't. It's not because of merit but it is because of the goodness of God. It is the nature of the Lord. The Lord told Moses when he passed by him, and he said, The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, 
And then he goes on to say, not clearing the guilty, and he takes care of the bad folks as well. You may remember that in the tabernacle in the wilderness, in the temple that God established in Jerusalem, there was a mercy seat. At first, when the tabernacle was built, that was the unified place of worship. It was a portable church that moved as the Spirit moved and the people of God moved as they wandered in the wilderness. It was a mobile church. Then later when they worshipped in the temple, there was still the same pattern of the temple and the same mercy seat there. The furnishings that were in the tabernacle and temple symbolized realities. They were types and shadows of things that we would realize in the Spirit and we would actualize in the New Testament. Things like the brazen altar of repentance and the laver of water representing baptism. The holy place that represented a new relationship with God of the Holy Ghost. Inside that place, the golden candlestick, the table of shoe bread, the altar of incense. And then beyond there, the most holy place where was the Ark of the Covenant. And the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. There were two golden cherubim that stood over the Ark of the Covenant at either end of the mercy seat. Exodus 25 tells us that God's instructions to Moses, Thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. And he gives them the dimensions of it and the two cherubim of gold that will be at the two ends of the mercy seat. And their faces would look down. These angels would look down toward the mercy seat. And the Lord said that the mercy seat would be above the ark of the covenant. So when you would walk in, only the high priest, if you walked in, you would die. If I walked in, I would die. But there was the, there was the ark of the covenant, and on top the lid of it was the mercy seat of solid gold, and the two cherubim on either side looking down into the mercy seat. This is the perfect law that was inside that Ark of the Covenant, the tables of the law, that defined the nature of God, that God is holy and pure. But when people under that covenant tried to live up to that law, they had no power to do it. The Bible tells us that there was a weakness under that covenant, but it was the, not the weakness of the moral principle, it was the weakness of the flesh. Romans 8 and 3, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So the Old Testament, the failure was not in the moral law of God. It was the failure of human beings to keep it without the power of the Spirit in their lives. So here is the law, and it demands that everyone live up to the righteous standards that God would establish. Here is the law that is inside the Ark of the Covenant, and here is the mercy seat. It measures about 27 inches by 45 inches. And the Bible said in Exodus 25, 17, that it is made of solid gold. It is a slab of pure gold. Above the law, the law is in the Ark of the Covenant, and above the law is the mercy seat, Exodus 25, 21. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above, upon the ark, and in the ark, 
thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee, those ten commandments. If you look at what God was establishing, it was mercy above the law. While the law demanded death, mercy found a way to give life. The blood of an innocent animal served as a substitution. And the blood was a covering for sins, an appeasement of the wrath of God against sin. The mercy seat was the base on which stood the golden cherubim. It's interesting that angels desire to look into, right, the plan of God. These cherubim there, not living angels, but representations of angelic beings are looking down into the mercy of God. This mercy seat symbolized the throne from which God would rule Israel. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest sprinkled the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the mercy seat as a plea for forgiveness for the sins of the nation. Leviticus 16.15 And he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. The Hebrew word for mercy seat literally means to wipe out or to cover over. It is a place to cover or overspread. So if you could get this visualization of what God was doing then and what God did when he saved us, that the blood was applied to the mercy seat. It was an act of pardon that represented being covered so that those sins would no longer be viewed by the divine justice and no longer meet with the the displeasure of God that would call for punishment. So the offender, you and me, we were covered, those Old Testament saints were covered and protected by the blood that was on the mercy seat. Amen. And here is God's abiding presence that is there and here is the golden mercy seat And here is the blood that is all splattered over top of it. But the Lord said this in Exodus 25, 21. Thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark. And in the ark, as I read earlier, thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. But look at verse 22. And there will I meet with thee and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. You know, there are people who want to ask the question, where is the blood applied to a person's life? There is blood applied at the brazen altar, typifying repentance. There is blood applied at the laver of water. There is blood all the way through. But you never stop until you get to the mercy seat. Because it is only there that the Lord said, that's where I will meet you. That is the completion of the process that begins at repentance and is finalized or culminates in receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. So where is the blood applied? It's applied all the way through. But you don't stop at repentance. and You don't stop at water baptism. You go all the way into the presence of the Lord where the blood is applied to the mercy seat and the Lord said, it is there that I will meet with you. The cross of Jesus Christ and His resurrection showed the perfect presence that was accomplished in this atonement, that word at one bringing back together 
reconciling God with man. Hebrews 10 and 10 speaks of the blood of Jesus Christ that did this. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And I can say amen and thank God for that. This is no accident that the blood that was splattered on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was the place where God covered sin and met with man. To me, it is stunning to think that God would design such a beautiful piece of solid gold, a slab of gold, and then splatter blood on top of that gold. But the price of that blood was higher than the price of that gold. For you were not redeemed by corruptible things, Peter said, such as silver and gold, but by the blood of Jesus Christ as a lamb without spot or blemish. Amen. So this mercy seat symbolized the future sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. So we would say that the cross was God's ultimate mercy seat where it was blood that was shed there that would cover sins past, present, and future. Everyone that would come under the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ. What an amazing, amazing imagery that God gave us in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, and in the temple in Jerusalem. All the wrath of God against the sin of man was executed back then on that innocent animal. The blood applied to the mercy seat. But the wrath of God against you and me was taken out, was executed. All the full vengeance of God's anger against sin was taken out on the body of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He became cursed for us. For cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. He became sin for us so that we might know the righteousness of God. It was in His death that we found life. So we could say that Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. It is a place in His death that we found life. And when we stand before God, both now and in the judgment, we will not stand there by our own morality or by our own merit, or by our own lives. But when we stand before God, we will stand before Him covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, made just as if we had never sinned. Praise God. We ought to take a moment to thank the Lord for the mercy seat. Amen. Amen. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, mercy was always extended by the larger to the smaller, by the richer to the poorer, by the strong to the weak, by the righteous one to the sinner. Mercy is given by the haves to the have-nots. And God's chief disposition towards sinful man is mercy. It's spawned by His love. It moves His hand, His power, toward us and as I said before the mercy of God is never deserved but it is always generated by God's character and not ours amen you would think 
that a place called the house of mercy would be a very special place for something very special to happen. And it was. It's fitting that the miracle we read about in our text today in John 5 occurred at a place full of Bethesda that means the house of mercy. In John 5, he tells us, and you'll see these verses on the screen again, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market or some say gate, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue or maybe Aramaic Bethesda, having five porches. If you are terribly ill, like Warm Springs, Georgia, and you heard back in the day, if you had polio, you could go to the Warm Springs of Georgia. They might have healing properties. If there was nothing else that could heal you, you would probably try to go there. And that's what people did. They came in droves to the pool of Bethesda. There were a few options in those days for anyone who had a crippling disorder. The pool of Bethesda was probably a public bath or maybe even a swimming pool. It was surrounded by five porticos, porches that would shade the people who would come there. And the Bible said that over time, maybe it looked like a homeless encampment. It was, camp and it was a, a great number of sick people who just basically lived there. It probably wasn't a place you would take the wife and kids to go down to the pool of Bethesda. Most people did not get healed there. John 5 and 3 says that there's a great multitude of impotent folk who were there. It gives a little description of them. They were blind and they were lame, halt. They were all withered up, maybe from some terrible disease. And they were waiting for the moving of the water. Around this pool, as close as they could get, for all of these afflicted people waiting for the angel to trouble the waters, what the word was is that was going to happen. I don't know if there were dozens or hundreds of people that lived around the pool of Bethesda, but they were all there with incurable ailments waiting for something to happen at the house of mercy. John tells us that they were impotent. They were without power. They were not able to do anything for themselves. And this man certainly was a man who could not help himself. And the Bible says that Jesus found this man there. John 5 and 5. A certain man was there which had an infirmity 38 years. And Jesus gravitated toward this man who had been sick a really long time. I mentioned this in reading the text. And I'll mention this maybe. I'll just save that. But of all the people who were there, I've wondered why would Jesus go to him? Why would Jesus go to a man who had been sick 38 years? He had to walk around, through, over a whole lot of people to get to perhaps the most helpless man that laid by the pool of Bethesda. He has this crippling infirmity and Jesus asks him in verse 6 when Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, you know, is kind of getting ready to say to him, what, what do you want me to do? Now, time has a way of eroding the faith of people. You've heard me teach before, if you've been here a while, that when God does something, typically there's the birth of a dream or vision, 
There's the death of the vision and there's the supernatural fulfillment of that vision, that dream, that plan that God had. You can go all the way back to Abraham and Sarah, the promise of a son, and how God waited till it was humanly impossible till He brought that promise to pass. And in our lives, very often it is like that. When I read this passage again, I, I was reminded of something you've heard before. But I think sometimes people put up with a situation so long that they just grow accustomed to it and they just quit praying about it. They don't try to get in the water. They come to church and they've just made up their mind, this is my lot in life. I will live this for this, with this forever. Now this is not my main point tonight, not the main theme of my message. But I want to just pause long enough at this verse to say, it doesn't matter how long you have put up with a difficult situation, how long you have lived with a problem. For this man, 38 years, and Jesus went around over and through a lot of other people to get to a man who had suffered a long time and was not able to get in the water. So don't lose your faith. Don't lose your faith. Don't ever quit praying. Don't ever quit believing. Don't ever get embarrassed or feel like that, that you're a problem or a burden because you come again. Every time the water was troubled, he was trying to get there. He says, while I'm coming, someone's faster than me. And Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? Do you want to be made whole? And then he gives his, his reasoning why he's not. John 5, 7. The impotent man answered him, Sir, I, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me in the pool, but while I am coming. I believe Brother Drew preached about while I am coming. Another stepeth down before me. I can't get healed because I'm not fast enough to be first. Have you ever felt like that? I'm always second or third or last. And this is like a winner take all. There's no silver medal, partial healing for the second person in the water. Pardon me, I know it's not a funny thing, but I've wondered about the people who tumbled into that pool, not healed. And Jesus didn't need a special event, didn't need a conference. He didn't need to wait till Josh Herring came back in town. He was the healer. Amen. John 5 and 8, Jesus said unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately, not tomorrow, not the next day, not after six months of therapy, immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And the same day was the Sabbath day. Instantly, just like that, after 38 years of nothing, after 38 years of waiting, the mercy of God came to a man who was always last, never first, and God miraculously healed him. Now there's a little sidebar to this story. This kind of really fits the theme of my message. After this man, who has suffered for 38 years, is healed, it happens to be on the Sabbath day, when Jewish people were not allowed to do any Work, right? You had to not work on the Sabbath day. And, and working a miracle, they decided, was work. And taking up your bed and walking was work. So he has now violated the Sabbath. And instead of celebrating the healing, they criticized the healed 
and the healer, and they said, is it not lawful to carry your bed on the Sabbath day? Now, I told you this isn't the theme of my message. I don't want to ever be that person. For someone who breaks protocol and got a miracle in their life, that we'd rather nitpick some little thing than celebrate the power of God and the miracle of what the Lord did. Amen. But here's my question to you tonight. Atlanta West Pentecostal Church, in the house, watching online. What kind of house is this? The Pool of Siloam literally means the house of mercy. Exactly what kind of church is this? And people go to the website and try to find out who we are. They're going to learn some things about our church. When they watch online, when they walk through our doors, there are some things that they might observe. They might observe the modesty with which we dress. They probably observe the demonstrative worship. Hopefully, demonstrative worship. Not passive, lame, pretty Pentecostal worship, but powerful, apostolic, spirit and truth worship, right? Amen. So to be clear, what kind of house is this? Well, this is a oneness, Pentecostal, or apostolic house. We're spirit-filled, we're Pentecostal. We were all filled with the Holy Ghost, just like they were on the day of Pentecost. And we're oneness Pentecostal. We believe that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself. We do not divide God into three co-equal parts. We understand that God was in Christ, that all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Him bodily. And there is one God who is the Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. We believe that He is indivisibly one. Amen. That's who we are. We understand that. Amen. We understand that baptism is by immersion in water in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and we teach and preach and practice Acts 2.38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, specifically in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Not an outward sign of an inward grace, but for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We are a holiness church, both inwardly and outwardly. We believe in cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting Holiness in the fear of God is 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says we believe in gender distinction and modesty and moderation. We're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, amen? For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. We are not ashamed to be apostolic, oneness, Pentecostal. That's our who we are. We have a cultural identity. We're one church, one church. With many cultures in our church. We're not a white church or a brown church or a black church. We're not a young church or an old church. We're not a city church or a country church. We're not a big church or a small church. We are one church baptized into one body. We're the body of Christ. Amen. Paul affirmed this in Romans 10 and 11. For the scripture says, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. 
For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, regardless of their culture, creed, race, background, socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter if they come to the cross of Jesus Christ. This is a house of mercy. Amen? Paul said in Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ. Colossians 3.11, you're neither... Greek, Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian. You know I love the Scythians. That was the lowest social class. Bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. That's who we are. But today I want to ask about how do we measure up on the mercy meter? This church must always be a house of mercy for sinners. Amen. When Matthew called Matthew, when Jesus called Matthew to be an apostle, a disciple, he went to eat with Matthew at a house. And the Bible said there were a lot of tax collectors and sinners that sat down with him at the same table. Dinner with the sinner on common ground. Not unholy ground. Not holy ground at that time, but common ground. And the Pharisees, they said to his disciples, why is your master, this guy that's supposed to be so holy, why is he eating with these tax collectors and these sinners? And Jesus, he knew what they said. He heard them and he said, they that are whole need not a physician, but they are sick. They that are sick. And then Jesus gave them a homework assignment. Matthew 9.13 But go ye and learn what that means. There's a scripture he said in your Bible. It's in their Bible, the Old Testament, Hosea 6 and 6. He said, I want you to go find out what God meant when he had this written. Go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This might sound a little bit like Sunday. Amen. The worst sinner is who the gospel can save and it doesn't matter who they are. Amen. The Lord said, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. It means I prefer mercy to sacrifice. I am more affected by pouring out my mercy than somebody that just does a sacrificial act out of duty or regulation. I'm looking for people that would be merciful. That's why that Samaritan that had mercy on that man was better than the priest or the Levite who were all about their religious duty and didn't have compassion on a man who had fallen among thieves and was half dead. This house is a house of mercy for sinners. Mercy is in the DNA of Atlanta West. Woven into the fabric of our history. The collective memory of people who have been here as long or longer than I have been. We understand how much mercy we needed as a church. And patience and forgiveness and encouragement to get our act together and get back on the right track. And many of you who have been restored by the mercies of God came to this house broken and beaten and bruised and down. Some, some of you, some watching online, some who will be here Sunday, had given up on religion, turned off by preachers, disgusted with hypocrites in the church. Others have given up on yourself when you came in these doors. 
But when you walked in this house, pray to God that you found a house of mercy. You saw mercy in the eyes of the people who drove you to the front doors. You saw mercy in the faces of those who welcomed you into the foyer and into the sanctuary. You felt mercy while you worshiped with people around you and while the word of God was preached. You felt mercy dropping like rain. I shouldn't have said that tonight. And if you do not want it to rain in here like it's raining out there, only people who have been here a long time know that I said it. I said that on a Pentecost Sunday. And it was pouring rain. And God is my witness. If you were here, raise your hand. You remember it? Look around. Lots of witnesses. It started raining in here like it was raining out there. Water pouring down the walls. Water pouring into the baptistry. Ceiling tiles falling out. It rained in here like it rained out there. But I wanted to say, that's not what I meant. But I just kept preaching and the ushers kept bringing bigger and bigger trash cans. And we had a great Pentecost thunder, Sunday with thunderous <laughs> rain falling on the outside and the inside. Amen. Mercy drops round me or falling. You know that old song some of you older folks do? The church attracts people. Like the pool of Bethesda attracted messed up people. I'm sure word had gotten around. There's only one. Only one. We don't know when it's going to happen. It's like the lottery sort of, you know, like who knows who's going to win, but everybody's going to play. Don't do that. It's a terrible decision. That's how it was at the pool of Bethesda. They were hoping for a miracle. But I was, I was envisioning what that church, it wasn't a church, but you understand, I was envisioning what that looked like. If you would have gone there, it would have probably turned your stomach. It might have been disgusting and smelly. I doubt they were clean. But they were at the house of mercy hoping for a miracle. And only one can get it. Blind come in our house spiritually and naturally. Crippled bodies, crippled dreams, Withered hands, withered hope. If you see the way people come, sometimes it can be a pitiful sight when people come to the house of mercy. But that is the perfect environment for a miracle. God gravitates to needy people. God gravitates to desperate people. God gravitates to people who have faith. Like he said with the crowd touching him. Who touched me? Well, Lord, everybody's touching me. He said, no, no. That was a different touch. Virtue went out of me. Somebody touched me in faith. And that little woman said, if I could just touch the border of his garment, I know that I will be made whole. And it was faith that moved the heart of God. So to Atlanta West Pentecostal Church, this is and must always be a house of mercy for the worst sinner ever. Amen. So I want to know, are, are we a house of mercy? You take time to look around you and welcome people you may or may not recognize and
Go ahead and risk saying hi to someone that's been coming for months and you just don't remember them, but you'd rather do that than miss someone who came for their very first time. And I was wondering, what kind of sinners are we trying to reach? You know, some churches, when they are launched, have a target demographic. They're going after boomers or busters or they're going after generation X, Y, or Z. They're targeting the upper class or the middle class or the lower class. Not many churches, unfortunately, are targeting them. They're targeting, you know, white upper class professionals or they're going after the black population or the Asian or Indian. And who are they marketing to? Disgruntled Christians who are dissatisfied with traditional church and they're trying to offer a creative alternative. And I just want you to know that our target audience is a little different than that. If you want to know, it's in Matthew 13, 27. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a net. And it was cast into the sea and it gathered every kind. At the end of the age, the Lord will sort them out. But that, that fisherman, he just pulled in the net. He had big fish and little fish and good fish and bad fish. And he just threw in the net and pulled it in. And, and whatever he drew to shore is what came in. Amen. This is our target audience, Revelation 22, 17. It's our strategy. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst, Come. And let whosoever will, Come. Let him take the water of life freely. So that means young and old and rich and poor from every racial background, from every social background. It does not matter who they are. This is a house of mercy. No one who ever lives a life of sin will go to heaven. And if you're going to change your eternal destination, you must be changed by the power of the gospel. If you're going to change your eternal address, you've got to come to a house of mercy. And if we as a church are going to really reach lost people who feel hopelessly condemned, we've got to be the people who don't leave that lame man lying there he would say, I don't have anybody to help me. At the house of mercy, surely you should. Now I have a little fine print right here. It's highlighted in green. Just so you'll know, we have a safety team. Don't observe people who come with impure motives. We have a God who watches over us. And we have people who watch for that thing. So that means you don't have to assign yourself to that team. You can just be part of the mercy team because we have a safety team. So that means you don't have to be suspicious of people, reluctant about people, you know, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. There's, there's wisdom that we practice even as people in this house of mercy. But I think you understand what I'm saying. Through the years at churches in general and probably here, someone has walked through the doors and they felt like they were just kind of watching them and eyeing them and they didn't fit the paradigm of the people that were there. You know, the, the, what people thought 
the kind of person that should come. But I thank God that there are people who are like, they went from the gutter to salvation. You've heard me tell the story before that the one-time superintendent of the country of Argentina, of the United Pentecostal Church, I preached in his church, right? In, in Buenos Aires, not Buenos Aires, but Rosario, I think, Brother Reyes, Brother Diasasas, right? He was a homeless bum in a park, am I right? And they gave him a piece of literature, and a homeless bum read a tract and came to a Pentecostal church and was saved and was established and grew and was called of God and became a leader of a national work. I preached in his church. I've been in his home. And that was a guy that we probably would have said, no, that's just, he's just for hope ministry on Saturday. He doesn't come in on Sunday. But he can in the house of mercy. I realize we need whole people to take care of the broken and we need healed people to take care of the sick. For all of us are a work in progress. All of us are hopefully better than we used to be but not better than we're going to be. God's grace is working in our lives and we're all trying to grow up into the stature and fullness of Christ and be like Jesus in every way. Amen? So you don't have to wait till you're perfect to show mercy to people and give them a second chance and a place that they can find God and turn their lives around. Amen. I saw a funny sketch one time. It's like the hand sanitizer church. In a COVID culture, more than ever, we understand the threat of spreading germs. But you know, somebody walks in the door, they don't look exactly, you know, like probably they've got it all together. Welcome to Atlanta West Pentecostal Church. So glad you're here today. Oh, you said that you have an addiction? You're homeless? You've got four kids? They're really, right? But I think some people come in and they feel like we've got the self-righteous hand sanitizer out. It's making sure we don't get close enough to catch anything. And I'm not talking about COVID or a serious illness. I'm talking about pushing people away who come to the house of mercy. A reflex action of fear in the house of mercy. This, this church is going to get defiled. You know, it's one of the most amazing things to me is that Jesus Christ, the Holy One in flesh, He did not typically touch a demon-possessed person. He spoke to demon-possessed people. But He touched a leprous man who was unclean. And all the uncleanness of the leper couldn't get on Jesus. But the cleanliness of Jesus cleansed the leper. They call it the cleansing of the leper. It was Jesus who stopped the funeral procession and touched the casket because the defilement of the dead could not get on Jesus, but the holiness and healing of Jesus and, and the resurrection of Jesus got in them. Amen. When they come here, we're okay. We know who we are. We know who we are. We're not going to compromise 
our convictions to reach lost people. You don't have to compromise. It is the holy power of God that brings them into a relationship that changes them and doesn't change us. Don't be afraid of them. To this house is a house of mercy for the destitute and the solitary. Psalm 68 and 5, a father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God setteth the solitary in families and bringeth out those which are bound in chains. Look at those two verses. He's a father to the fatherless. He's a judge, a defender to the widows. An orphan or a widow kind of epitomizes a helpless person. There's no social services then. So a person who is a widow or an orphan was destitute, and that's who God is referring to a person like that. And someone that doesn't have a family, they find family in the family of God. Psalm 147.2, The Lord doth build up Jerusalem. He gathereth together the outcasts of Israel. Psalm 147.3, He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. Jesus said of his mission in Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. It doesn't mean poor in spirit. It means poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. And he goes on to say to Preach the acceptable year of the Lord. In, John, in Matthew 11, 4 through 6, Jesus sent disciples back to John the Baptist, held to t- John the Baptist to tell them what was going on in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus said, Go tell John again the things that you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. That happens at the house of mercy. A mercy, mercy means loving people who are suffering even when it's their fault. Because the cop out is well, throw mistakes. It's your own decisions. You made your bed, sleep in it. And I understand consequences. Your own backsliding will reprove you. There's a, there's a whole side of the wages of sin is death and the laws of sowing and reaping. I get all of that. I get that. But mercy among us means that we love people not just when they suffer unjustly, but when they suffer for their own sins and for their own mistakes. The pity that we have, the mercy that we have, that's for people, even when they've done some really dumb things. And they come to the house of mercy, not looking for a lecture, but looking for hope. Amen. So we always say invest in relationships, intercede in prayer. Invite them to your house. Invite them to dinner. Invite them to sit with you in church. Invite them to experience 
what we all experienced this past Sunday in the house of mercy that God can save the worst sinner. Don't you wish everybody, not because I preached that sermon, but don't you wish the worst sinner would have been here Sunday to hear that there was hope for them? Connect with people around you. Meet them on common ground. I've already said it, not unholy ground, but common ground. Don't look down your nose at people in a self-righteous way at people who are trying to find God. Spiritually and literally, they may look like this lame man dragging himself toward the pool of Siloam of the house of mercy. But most people might have said he's too bad off. Like, we'll just let him die. Let's help somebody who's got a little more going for them. Now the Bible said that Jesus walked past, tells us there's a great multitude there, right? So I'm just going to make this assumption. I think it's fair to the scripture that Jesus had to walk past a great multitude of sick, impotent folk to get to the worst guy there. 38 years, can't walk, can't even really drag himself much. And that's the guy he heals. And if we will reach out to them, then they will have hope to reach up to God. If you don't mind, please stand. Jesus said, The poor you have with you always. And you'll have opportunities to give to them if this woman's, you know, poured out this ointment on me. I understand the context of that scripture, anointing him for his burial. So I know that the poor you have with you always, there will always be people in society and in church environments that seem to always struggle, whether it's economically or spiritually. And that they don't have to do that. They don't have to live that way. That's just the reality we accept. But there's another reality. Probably every one of us, if we were really honest, could say that maybe we don't live there perpetually, but at a time in our life, we are at the bottom. Might have been for a week or a month or longer than that, but we're at a place in our life, maybe financially, physically, relationally. We're just dead bottom and I hope that there was a human hand that reached for you and pulled you into fellowship in a house of mercy but even if a human being missed it God didn't and he loved you more than people love you and extended mercy to you to save you so if we would let that same mercy that saved us Use us to be a hand to reach out to someone else. I just felt like in this season while we're talking about our mission and refocusing our attention on why we are a church, that I needed to talk again about this house of mercy. If you're able, I'd like to invite you to come. If you're not able to come, I'd like to ask parents of students and crowd to Give them a little time back there. These altars are open. If you need to stay where you are, you're welcome to do that. Amen. The love of God is unconditional.
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us.